0: Hello everyone, I'm Trent Lewis. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. I continue to get a lot of information about insurance companies, insurance things. I wanted to have that discussion Uh, We're going to have that discussion with Chuck Miller about flood insurance in northeast Colorado at some point in time. But for today, Casey Yeager joining us. He's only going to be with us for the first half of the broadcast here on this Red Shirt Friday as uh, we are preparing for the big tour to begin. And the second half, we're going to have a discussion about the Yuma meeting, Yuma, Colorado meeting that I was very fortunate to attend and uh, what I witnessed and my thoughts about the entire land-use CO2 pipeline extravaganza that's taking place now. But we got some stuff we need to do ahead of time. And uh, we are kind of doing a little preparation. But Casey, you're joining us from Hancock County, Illinois. You're, you're in Hancock County, right? I am. Yeah. I, I'm I thought so. five
1: minutes to Lee County, Iowa, but I'm still in Illinois.
0: You'd have to migrate across that Mississippi River if you were actually in Iowa.
1: Yeah, no. The wife kind of wants to get back across. She's from Fort Madison, and uh, I'm from here by Nauvoo.
0: Well, she had no a good sense went. to move your way. She did. Yeah, she did. <laughs> no option. <laughs> so, so Casey, I'm going to get to see you Sunday. Are you coming to John Wood yes. and to Quincy? Um, coming to Quincy. All right. So John Wood from four to six. And then we're going to migrate and should be to Quincy 630 or so at the Holiday Inn. Tony's 2, and that'll that'll be fantastic. But there are I've been trying to wrangle you onto the air for a long time. (laughs) Finally got you to slow down enough. But I can now see you have this wonderful, I I can't really read it. You got a, a thing behind you on your wall in your house. What's that say? Everybody works for somebody. I work for
1: everybody in these United States that steps into a butcher shop for a steak. And that's (laughs) GW McClintock. If you need told,
0: (laughs) we kind of gave
1: up TV in this house, but that will allow old John Wayne movies.
0: McClintock. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be the funniest Western ever made. It's a good one. So speaking of having a steak, we have at stake in our future uh everywhere i go today casey somebody's talking about flood insurance is an issue there's consolidation in the insurance business my grandfather said by the way that uh insurance is like flea collars only works if you don't need them and i have never argued with that whole concept you happen to dabble in the insurance business a little bit and, and something's going on in illinois that's going to spill its way over to other states what's happening
1: so uh we're waiting on the white paper for, uh, to get to the manager of Surveyor mutual but right now we're staring at um due to restrictions and legislation uh from a law in 1986 that uh, won't allow more reinsurance reinsurance of cat policies in the state of Illinois we're looking at just cat policies
0: not not dog policies
1: no uh, catastrophic okay
0: uh, we want to get and that lingo
1: if, if they were to be allowed, we just found out about this this month. Um, the agency just found out about it the month before. He exhausted all options. Um, he If he had time before January 1, he could switch from a small farm mutual to a different terminology and be able to pursue insurance again. But as of right now, there's 19 small insurance agencies in the state of Illinois that I believe it's 51,000 policies will uh, either be canceled or non-renewed as of January 1 due to non-compliance with the state of Illinois over terminology.
0: Is this just an Illinois thing or is my premise somewhat correct that the insurance business as a whole is not real solid?
1: Um. Well, it's been... A very difficult thing to try to keep up with inflation since COVID. You had building costs skyrocketing. Um, and then, obviously, with the wind damages and storms we've had, it's been difficult for the companies to underwrite new business. Cars went double in price. And you could take that back to um, probably back into the Obama days when they did it, the cars for clunkers that drove used vehicle prices through the roof. Then it's still continuing. And so they're they're underwriting a ten thousand dollar car. Well, somebody's paying for a ten thousand dollar car, they total it, and now they got to pay for an eighteen thousand dollar car because of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so companies are they're gonna make their money. Um, and so we're seeing rates increase and companies go under because of uh the amount of reinsurance they've had to increase and surplus lines they've had to get dig into. And so it's it's been a, it's been kind of a wild west um for a while but yes there's been consolidations there's been uh, um closures uh, I am hearing of uh and pulling out of Illinois not confirmed um but it has come from higher ups and so I I don't know what what all is going to happen with it but uh, this is definitely a direct blow to you know, myself um, and how we've structured our lives around it uh, to now have to try and focus on keeping coverage for our clients means we might end up having to merge with another company ourselves just to to keep our clients uh,
0: protected. You know, we all talk about in romance, the small business owner, but at every turn, the regulations, uh, the government forced consolidations. It all leads to bigger, smaller, bigger and fewer businesses. And yet that's not what anybody knows is best for the future. But at the end of the day, that's what we're forced into.
1: I mean, I have to agree with it, Um, but I will say I thought it was odd. There was um, big companies going around buying agencies out left and right just a few years ago. So those of us that didn't sell like myself are now. Uh, kind of devalued to where we might end up being assumed but we'll see i mean we'll keep fighting it there is going to be a day where the 25th we go to the state legislature they've got a bill in the progress i'll get you direct contact info to get better information i just had a brief conversation with the the manager of surveyor this morning to kind of get a grasp on it but I've honestly kind of tried to ignore it over the weekend and and right. get a, get my bearings as to where we're going to go.
0: So um, I'm I'm getting bits and pieces and actually had to sit down with one person who writes flood insurance for the all fifty states. Uh, FEMA is apparently doing something fairly nefarious in my mind, that results in changing in the classification of risk when it comes to flood insurance. I know you live right off the Mississippi River, but is this flood insurance something you dabble in?
1: Not really. I, I saw that as a headache. We're a small agency. It's me and uh, two others. They're both part-time. Uh, one's full-time now. Uh, and so I I contracted with another agency to provide, provide flood, flood insurance at in the beginning. As well as crop, um, and I guess the, my own ideology was why I avoided getting into either one of those. Just I don't have a I don't have a filter on my mouth, as well as I don't have a policy that means I, if I don't sell enough insurance, then I'm gonna have a guaranteed income. So as a, just a personal note, I avoided that.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, it's good to know where your limitations are, Casey. hey before we go to a break i know that uh and i think that's part of what you're wearing on your cap you're in the deer hunting blind business what's going on with that oh uh
1: we've been manufacturing a hunting hut uh deer blind uh, elk blind in one spot for four years now um blindsiderblinds.com and uh, it's been a great way to to communicate and network all across the country with guys that just love the outdoors and, and, and that's that's been fun and a lot more positive uh we get guys from south carolina to montana using our hunting blinds and uh, it's it's been growing so it,
0: it's been fun Yeah, I can see where that would absolutely be much more fun to be in uh, than the insurance business as a whole. When we come back, we're going to dive into biblical proportions and how the Bible maybe should play a role in what you are consuming from a dietary standpoint. And I'm not talking about refraining from eating pork, I don't think. We'll find out when we return. Casey Yeager joining us from Hancock County, Illinois. Is your address still still
1: Nauvoo? uh, Technically, Niota.
0: Niota. Everybody knows where Niota, Illinois is at. We need to take a break. Casey Yeager will come back. When we come back, we're going to completely change course. We talked, I said we're going to talk about insurance. Now we're going to talk about diet and the Bible. How about that? How about that combination? Certified Piedmontese is all about one part of that conversation anyway. I'm not even saying they're not part of both of them, but from a diet standpoint, they understand tender beef because the Piedmontese cattle are tender, guaranteed tender. The Deluxe Freezer Filler has been donated for our event at Broken Bow next week. The Women's Bronc Riding is what everybody's talking about, just got to say. But cpbeef.com, you can get your freezer filled. Check it out today. We're back with more Casey Yeager Roll Out on Redshirt Friday after this. Welcome back. Roll Out, connecting the farm to the fork. Casey Yeager joining us again. Casey joining us from, I don't know if I said Jaeger. Jaeger joining us from Hancock County, Illinois. And we are making our way to Adams County. I was in Hancock County, Casey didn't take time to show up there. Who else would organize a meeting for farmers right in the middle of harvest other than Trent Luce, huh? Who would do that? It happens. I did it, it and we had a great crowd. COVID changed so many things for so many people. People started reevaluating what they've been told, what they think, what they should think, what they should do, what they should eat. I get the impression that it was the same for you.
1: Yeah. Ironically enough, mine was timed up about the year prior. Um, In 2019, back to the hunting, I drew a tag out west and thought if I was going to go on an elk hunt in the backcountry, I might as well use food that I raised myself. And so I started getting into pemmican. Uh, I've always been... I guess you'd use the word infatuated with the the West and the grasslands and native Americans. And so I started going down that path. And a long story short, I, you know, fast forward to January, 2020, and I'd done some stints that were, I grew up with Buffalo. So that was what was in the freezer. That was what we ate. And uh, that was cheapest for dad to feed me with. Cause I didn't hardly stop eating, but, um, January 2020, Dr. Sean Baker was doing a January carnivore month, and I did that and just absolutely stuck to it and felt amazing. Uh, You really start to question, um, you know, epidemiology studies, the food pyramid, uh, dietary regulations, when you yourself are having such uh, awesome. Changes. I lost 20 pounds. I was sleeping better, I was more energetic and uh, would bounce out of bed in the mornings. To kind of go back, I had also built a sauna uh, because I was having I had a motorcycle accident 15 years ago ish. uh, And I think I had some long term damage show up in my spine. I was going to have to fuse it. And I've been cut on enough that I just wasn't going to have it. So I started stretching in. A, I built this when I say I built a sauna. We insulated a small room; it might be seven foot by seven foot, uh, the way you should. And then I went straight farmer on it and put a little twenty dollars space heater on a timer that kicks on and it gets it to <laughs> one hundred and twenty
0: degrees. And I love it, it.
1: It's it works on a dime, and you definitely get plenty warm to loosen up your muscles and stretch. And that's all I was wanting to do was I didn't want to be uh, uh, getting cut on my spine. And
0: Please tell so me I, you I took chased... duct tape and put it up at high level so that it would warm better with duct tape. Yeah. I'll give her a whirl. <laughs> I had to get duct tape and bailing wire in there some, Oh, you could just hang yeah. it from the ceiling with bailing wire.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. But, go ahead. You got a sauna.
1: Yeah, I got a sauna and started realizing that, you know, everything that I'd thought was, you know, we were being instructed to do was wrong. And so then I started kind of going down uh, the old medical books. I bought a, I found a medical doctor in 1928 that was advocating for a meat-based diet, and he had done studies in new york city on an arctic explorer bill hammer and his books were awesome and uh it just kept snowballing finally i went to the bible i was raised catholic never really went into the bible myself i've always believed in jesus christ uh but i really dove into it and when you see things in the bible that are you know and Timothy I think it is where he talks about uh, the meats for the belly and the bellies for meats and and, and there's all these sacrifices then they're burning the, in, the the offals and the fat and on the table and it just really made sense to me that you know if the holy ghost dwells in temples not made with hands then I'm assuming that would be us and if I'm going to pray over my food, I might as well make it to where it was the best possible food I was putting in my body. And now four and a half years into a pretty much carnivore diet, I would say I feel better. I feel younger. Um, my joints, that is, just uh, there's not as much inflammation. And when you get into the oxidative stress side of things that you get out of vegetables, Again, yeah, why are we told to eat our vegetables? Uh, Where does that come from other than maybe an economic standpoint? I don't know. Uh, It's really interesting. Why do we need antioxidants if we're not ingesting (laughs) oxidants? Has nobody ever asked
0: that question before? Is that too simple of a question? (laughs) I mean,
1: I've, I've not seen anything. You have to really dig for some of the thoughts that come out of my head online. Uh, I which it. I call tractor cab thoughts. It, it, uh, I spend plenty of time. Our oldest
0: in. daughter, Casey, is a, a dietician. I can't wait to give her that one.
1: It's, it's <laughs> the simplest things sometimes that are the hardest to understand and accept. Uh, when I, <laughs> a favorite quote of mine um, is the ability to test true intelligence. Is, hang on here. The ability to show the true sign of intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing thoughts and evaluate between the two of them without a knee-jerk reaction basically pointing you in one direction or the other.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: And we are unable, our pride and ego is just unable to do that. I I have so many conversations. Uh, Prime example, a guy that uh, has cancer, friend of the family. I've just said, here's some things to give him. You know, fasting, Matthew 17, 21, all these things go without, uh, but not by prayer and fasting. Forgive me if I butchered that a little bit. But, you know, I take prayer and fasting. The, the definition of fasting is a religious abstinence from food. So if the definition is religious abstinence, there's the connection that's already there. But we're so devoted to the medical system that we won't try anything else. Well, the medical system has basically thrown their hands up and we're so attached to it that we can't accept mm-hmm. that anything else might, might work. Um, and it's sad to see that there's that sort of loyalty to something without the at least investigation of what else might be out there
0: for options. I'm very familiar with the carnivore diet. I believe what you're doing is best. There are two things that keep me from diving into the carnivore diet. This is where you say, well, what are those two things, Trent? Tell me. (laughs) Potatoes and beer.
1: (laughs) I don't raise potatoes. um, So, therefore, I just don't eat them. Um, When I do, I cook my own and I use beef fat. I try to avoid all seed oils at all possible. And and I I want to address uh podcast that I just listened to with Jay Truett yesterday. There is a, a huge division um between small food people, and especially in the carnival world, you see a lot of grass-fed, grain-fed, local. And I do agree that we need to get back to what I've heard referred to as a food shed. We've got a watershed, we need a food shed. Agreed. You know, that's staying within your you know range of range of travel. Um uh, but We can get into the dirt uh, and really throw mud for no reason and grass versus grain. And, you know, the animals might be ingesting things that we wouldn't want to ingest, but their body's also designed to filter it out just the way ours is designed to filter it out as well. And, uh, you know, the, the huge push in the small food industry is to avoid glyphosate. Yeah, I don't spray glyphosate on my cows. So I avoid it automatically, but I use it around our farm. It's been a very wonderful thing to not have to weed eat my fences every year or, uh, you know, keep the thistles out. So it's not that it's a completely bad thing. It's more along the lines that just a moderation in use.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: And with the vegetables, you don't know how far they're traveling when they come to the super. Superfood yeah. Well, odds and are
0: pretty good. 80% of all vegetables are grown in Salinas Valley in California, so odds are good to travel 1,000-plus or miles unless you live in California. Casey, we're about out of time, but there is one miracle of God that I, I really can't get an answer to. We know that the organ meats take, i.e., liver, which I had on my birthday dinner, by the way, beef liver. Its responsibility in the body of the animal is to filter out the toxins, and yet it is the most nutritious organ you can eat from an animal. I find that fascinating.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating. And I used to um, ingest liver daily, uh, made little ice cubes out of it, and just pour my hot water into my coffee and pour my hot water on those ice cubes and just shoot it really quick. Uh, My wife's great at cooking it, so I eat it when she cooks it probably every other month or monthly. But um, I think once you get your tanks topped off and you're not depleting them, by because our body uses magnesium to get everything out. So I think once your tanks are topped off, you're good to go. Yeah, I mean, I haven't uh, been sick but one time in four and a half years. And
0: so it's really Unfortunately, quite our tanks are topped off and we got to go. But we will continue this conversation <laughs> on Sunday. Casey Yeager joining us from Hancock County, Illinois. It is all about discernment. Discern what is best for your body. God bless the veterans and the farmers who feed us. That's Casey Yeager. Roll route. We're back with more after this. Welcome back, Trent Luce. I am going to have no guest in this segment because I wanted to spend one segment here going through what I witnessed not only in Yuma, Colorado this past week, but the entire debacle as it involves a plant food, particularly CO2. The premise that CO2 is abundant in the atmosphere is false. I would encourage, and any bit of data that I'm sharing today can be found at co2coalition.com. I had Gregory Wrightstone on Trent on the Loose this week. If you've not seen that broadcast, I strongly suggest that you watch that because he's a scientist and years ago got really fed up with the demonization of CO2 a plant food and put together an organization today that generates phenomenal information. And the one thing, okay, so if you look at the historical perspective, and let's just go back 200 years, because I I struggled understanding 10,000 years. I'm fairly good at 2,000 years from a, from a Bible standpoint. But if you look at the course of this nation, okay, let me stop. If you look at the course of the world, I should have said, and you think about where I was a week ago today. A week ago today, I'm in the coal fields of North Dakota, and in the coal fields of North Dakota, much like Wyoming, parts of Colorado, uh, obviously in the east, you have these massive seams of coal, and they're massive, and where I was, Beulah, North Dakota, the seam is between 110 and 160 feet Deep in earth, and in this part of the country, it's 17 to 18 feet thick for the most part. That's what I witnessed. I understand there are seams that are thicker, I understand there are seams that are less. Where I was at in Beulah, North Dakota, it is 17 feet thick from the top of the seam to the bottom of the seam. They dragged the dirt off of the top. Uh, they I ran the drag line machine, that was a little scary. And they blast the coal seam, they break it up, load it on a truck, and haul it to the facility where they then usher it to the coal-fired power plant. That 17-foot seam is, without question, because of the intensity of the energy and the carbon, is from that period of time that CO2 was quite abundant in the atmosphere. I mean, we're talking today's 430 parts per million. We're talking uh, 1,700 parts per million, where it was 1.7% of the Earth's atmosphere. See, we're arguing about something that makes up 0.042% of the Earth's atmosphere. All right, so let's just think about this. We're demonizing coal because the carbon that is emitted. But, okay, let me, oh, I just made a mistake, and I want to correct myself. Because of the carbon dioxide that is emitted. The carbon dioxide is present because of an extremely abundant time in Earth's history when the amount of carbon dioxide increased plant growth at such an exponential point that it was just abundant everywhere. That's why that seam of coal is there, because of the massive amount of CO2 leading to an extraordinary amount of plant growth that was then destroyed by some catastrophic event. Most people think a flood and Noah's Ark comes to mind. And then you have this this compression and you have compaction and you have over the course of thousands of years this formation of what is knowingly called a seam of coal. And I'm told there's 800 years worth of coal left in this country. In this country, not the world, in this country. So back to the premise that we're allowing people to get away with, which is that the, the demonization of One of the true miracles of God's creation, the element called carbon dioxide, CO2, one part carbon, two parts oxygen. And if you look at what has taken place in the United States since 1880, prior to 1880 in this period of whatever they call these thousand year blocks, in 1880 is when carbon dioxide in the atmosphere started skyrocketing, not skyrocketing, excuse me started elevating. And it began elevating until 1940. In 1940, it was at 320 parts per million. And today it's up to 430 parts per million. Now, if you look at a graph, it looks like a stark increase. But the truth of the matter is in the big picture, it's 330 parts per million to 430 parts per million. It's not a lot. Compare that to 1,700 parts per million in that period of time that led to the massive growth that led to the coal seam. So we have documentation. In fact, I have numbers. I have numbers right here on the amount of CO2 increased in the atmosphere from from 320 to 430, where we're at today. In the carrots and turnips division, Species would be a better word. There's an increase of 77%. Now, this is an increase in the crop biomass from an additional 300 parts per million. So they're going back to 1880 instead of where we're at today from 1945 post-World War II. 77% increase in carrots and turnips. Tropical fresh fruit, 72%. Grapes, 68%. Sugar beets, 65%. Dry beans, 61%. Oranges, 54%. And you go down the list, and then you come back to the products that we can really relate to here in Farmville, USA, corn and soybeans. And you just think, don't don't look up any graph. Don't think about what the science says. Just think about what you know about your agricultural production in that period of time. It's skyrocketed. Look at the year 2023. 2023, we were told is going to be a massive drought throughout the United States. And I talked to people and friends and relatives in Illinois, Indiana, and they're all telling me how severe the weather is. So it's just a drought. Now that harvest is coming out, guess what? There's a crop like there that they can't believe. They had, can't believe where all this crop is coming from, corn and soybeans. Number one, the resilience of the American farmer is underestimated. Building soil health is paramount to everything. We have built better soil health. We have more CO2, which is enabling better soil health. So the whole premise behind taking CO2 from an ethanol plant And burying it in the ground a mile deep flies in the face of everything that I just described to you. And for John Brown to stand in front of a group of people and and say that we are going to capture the CO2 and bury it a mile deep because we're going to help Mother Nature be better. Really? That's the stupidest statement. No, it's not to say. It's the second stupidest statement that I've witnessed in this whole debacle in the last three years. The stupidest statement is that Elizabeth Burns Thompson, who sat in front of the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission and said, we're not going to release the dangers of the kill zone, the plum study that the Navigator Pipeline came up with, because... Midwesterners aren't smart enough to understand it. That's how condescending these people who are doing nothing but targeting big money look down upon us, the peasants. You just need us to get these $85 per metric ton payments to help you survive. Well, I want to tell you what, if you're in the ethanol business and you're signing up for any a partnership with any of these companies who all have a financial backing from petroleum companies, you are Stupid. Every day somebody, I got an email last night, Trent, we really need to put together a list of who's sponsoring what to target these carbon capture scenarios because they're all petroleum-based companies who have convinced the ethanol plants that if you don't do this, you can't survive. Well, I'm here to tell you, if you do this, you won't survive because these are the very people who are they are coming up with this nonsense that we're going to emit carbon dioxide here. But because we're paying you or because we're allowing you to take your CO2 and bury it in the ground, you, you can continue. You have a little slip that says, OK, you're, you have a pass to walk the hall, but it's up to you if you get caught. You're going to get caught. You're going to get caught because they have developed a scheme to eliminate the very domestic energy supply called ethanol that put us in the bracket where we did not need to rely on other countries for foreign fuel. We do not need other countries for our energy supplies. We are creating this position where we have to import it because we've continually penalize domestic fuel production. The CO2 pipeline is the biggest debacle in my life because the other thing that did not clearly come out. And and furthermore, I got to say, I was massively impressed at the questions. I've been in this fight for three years. And what I witnessed in Yuma, Colorado, from the community and the local citizens who came to ask real questions about roads, about dangers, about all the technical aspects you need to know living in Washington or Yuma County, they asked the right questions. They didn't really want to answer the question. My favorite was, is BlackRock involved? Nobody knew. Yeah. I'm not buying that one either. But what I am buying, that this easement that you are forced to sign, if you happen to just be one of the lucky ones that gets paid to have this kill zone on your property, there is no assurance that that will not be owned by somebody else. Other than carbon America going down the road, because we've already seen case in point where easements have been sold to foreign adversaries, and that's happened in the pipeline business. And that's the other one thing that I want to say before we get out of here and run out of time. Do not let anybody use the safety of the petroleum and natural gas pipelines with the CO2. It is a completely different animal. CO2 expands at 535 times its own volume. It's compressed into a tube at 2,200 pounds per square inch. It is dangerous in that form. As wonderful of a molecule as it is in atmosphere, the only danger behind CO2 is when you compress it and put it in a tight area and allow it to expand. Guess where that happens? And they do it with management. Chicken, poultry, turkey, and pork facilities use CO2 in chambers to euthanize their animals. What else do you need to know? It's the concentration that causes the the, dis, the danger and the risk. I want to remind you about High Plains Apache. Talk about service and reliability at a time when you need to control pests. High Plains Apache gets that done. And also Simpson Farm Enterprises. The Apache sprayers are absolutely fantastic, but only as good as the service behind them. SimpsonFarm.com for full details about the Apache sprayers and what you can get done. SimpsonFarm.com. We're back with a female bronc rider, Brittany Miller. She's amazing. After this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Roll Routes, the program on a red shirt Friday. And uh, we're going to wrap up today's program with something that I'm pretty excited about. A young lady from Montana who is going to be participating in our women's bronc riding next Friday. Broken Bow, Nebraska. Part of the Arise USA. Where did that come from? Across the pond. <laughs> oh my goodness. Across the pond. Regaining control for the farmer tour. That was a flashback, was it not? Anyway, let's get back to Brittany Miller. I'm pretty sure you're more nervous about what's about to happen here for the next uh, 15 minutes than you are when you sit in the saddle of a bronc and you nod your head and say, open the gate. Is that an accurate statement?
2: Yeah, that is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Why are you so nervous? It's all good. Just chill out. Keep your mind in the middle. It'll work out. Yeah. Tell us about Brittany Miller. You are not only riding a bronc at our event next week, You're actually teaching women bronc riding. How did you get into bronc riding?
2: I first got into Ranch Bronx uh, while I was in college. I went to school for a horsemanship degree, and uh, I rode a lot of colts in a round pen. Sometimes they bucked, and I'd always wanted to rodeo, but at the time, I was too scared to rope in front of people, and I, I didn't feel any kind of connection with barrel racing, so... And I've always loved a bucking horse. I've always appreciated their athleticism. And I saw a, an ad on Facebook for a women's ranch bronc, and I looked up what ranch broncs were, and it's your everyday working saddle on a bucking horse. And I'm like, well, shit, I do that anyway. But now I get a chance to win some money at it, and then won my first event, and it took off like wildfire after that.
0: Um. We'll fix that. I've, I should have mentioned there's seven words we can't use on the air, but that's okay. Uh, we're off to a great, <laughs> great start. Um, you know what? We need to do something. I need to back up because you corrected me very politely without letting everybody know you were correcting me. These are ranch broncs, and there's a oh, difference. Kind of explain that?
2: Uh, ranch broncs your everyday working saddle, rope, night latch. No rope, whatever you want to use, but it has to have a horn, um, at, at least. And um, you just ride as ride can. The most in-control bronc ride is usually what what wins. Saddle bronc is a modified working ranch saddle to, uh, I don't know how in-depth we want to get with it, but there's no saddle horn. The swells are, are built uh, differently. The rigging's different. Um, everything is built, is modified on that on that saddle to take the power of bucking horse better than a ranch saddle.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad we walked through that because it is a different deal. The last ranch bronc ride I was at was in Mandan. They did not have a women's division at the uh, Rusty's, the uh, bulls and Bronx event, which is a fantastic event. But um, there were guys riding, smoking cigarettes, wearing suits. It was the most fun I've had at a rodeo, to be honest. And I've had a lot of fun at rodeos.
2: I, I wrote at that one a few years ago, the the very first one. Rusty did you really? Yeah, it was in St. Anthony, I think, it, North Saint, Dakota.
0: It's St. Anthony.
2: <laughs> yeah, St. Anthony, North Dakota. Yeah.
0: <laughs> did you win? Did you beat the guys?
2: No, no. Um, I did make it back for the, the short – I think it was the short round. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> – I got, I got bucked off a really nice up and coming colt. <laughs> Way well, too much horse for me, but, uh, he was throwing a big fit in the chute and they offered me a, a, a new horse, but I knew he needed to get out. So I knew he was going to be too much for me, but he had to get out anyway. And that wasn't fair to just turn him out for being uh, a little touchy in the shoot. So.
0: Uh, how did, I mean, I, I, we touched on this and you went to college and and you obviously grew up ranching, but there's just something unique about the, once you get in sync with horses and ranch life and people that don't experience it, Brittany, they just can't relate to it. How do you relate to folks about the ranch life in general? And, and I know you're horseback every day. Uh, I think one day this week when I wanted to get you on earlier you said you're in the saddle 10 hours every day uh it just becomes addicting doesn't it
2: yeah yeah it it's just kind of turned into who I am now and I mean I I ride a lot of Colts so I, I go through about three horses a day here at the sale yard um you know just just to make them kind of last I don't just sit on one horse for 10 hours a day I I'll switch around but that that's the horsemanship uh side of me you know as a horsewoman i i don't i respect my horses enough to you know only ride them three four hours and then switch to the next one and kind of have some respect for them that way but
0: well quite frankly for those of us that have started horses and, and when you work them in a sales yard you're giving them experiences that are just making them a solid horse because you're starting, you're going, you're opening gates, you got cattle charging you got all these things happening that are unexpected. There, there's so many environments. It's good to expose a horse to before you would consider them broke really. But at that sales yard, there's so many things that just really give you a leg up and getting a solid horse.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, a lot of people, Ask me how I get away with starting horses here, and oh, you you know that's the first ride, and you're doing all this stuff. And I mean, if I break it down, it's really not so bad. There's there's only one way to go. Everything's enclosed, and you've got control of your forward motion. You can do anything on on a colt here at the yard as long as they know how to go forward.
0: You know what, folks? Brittany Miller just gave us a slogan for life. It's not (laughs) just about working horses. If you have control of your forward motion. You can do anything. That's as profound as anything that's been said on this program. Well, yeah, I'm having as much fun as it looks like I am with Brittany Miller. And we're going to be together next Friday, Broken Bow, Nebraska. The Across the Pond event starts at 4 o'clock. Between 4 and 6, we will have what we normally do, recording TV, radio. Brittany's going to be so experienced at TV. Now she's going to want to be a part of that. But the bronc riding, the ranch bronc riding, thanks to Derry Mayfield and his uh, his broncs, We'll begin at 6 o'clock. We have the women's division, which I think at this moment, Brittany, we have four entered. We're still going to get a few more. And uh, I understand we got like 24 guys entered. How The first time I experienced women's uh, bronc riding was I was at the Cal Palace. I spoke at the Grand National years ago, and they had a women's bronc riding division. I was like, oh, you're kidding me. And there's no reason we should be surprised because women – Many times, the best cowboys aren't boys at all, as the song goes. But how long have women been riding Bronx in competition?
2: Um, that that kind of depends. Um, women have been riding bucking horses since the late 1800s and into the 1930s. Um, and then it kind of ended around 1939, but uh, as far as Modern time goes, it's still pretty dang new. I mean, there there have been a handful off and on for the last 20 years, but um, actually the last 10 years since I started in 20, um, 2010, um, oh shoot, I can count probably 300 women who have gotten on at least one bucking horse in the last 10 years. So it, it really is starting to take off now.
0: Okay, wait a minute, Brittany. 300 women that got on one brought bucking uh, horse how uh, many got on two
2: now <laughs> don't those numbers go downhill
0: <laughs> but you're putting on clinics and teaching right
2: yeah so i i finally uh started teaching women um professionally as as a business this year um and this year alone i have taught about 200 women um wow. how to ride a buck uh and I, I thought I'd be able to put on schools in the fall, but my fall schedule is so busy, I won't be able to take the time um, to put on a proper school on the weekend. So I'm going to uh, just focus all, all my energy on, on putting five to six schools on in the spring all over the states and internationally and kind of just go from there.
0: Speaking of which, you have uh, just returned from a... a- a bronc riding display in somewhere in europe was it the uk or france i got mixed signals uh, france. i france.
2: i entered rodeo in france and then i went to belgium and taught a school over there how did that go it, it was really it was awesome because europe is so far behind with the with rodeo um especially bronc riding and ranch bronx is such a new concept to them Um, they're even farther behind with the women's bronc riding than we are in the states and I had five girls in my school in Belgium and that was a lot that was that was everyone was so stoked that there was five (laughs) and and usually in the states I get anywhere from 10 to 15 so um, it's starting to pick up the girls over there they're actually competing on their own now and they're doing really well
0: so I would be shocked to learn that there is a men's bronc riding in Belgium and France.
2: Um, saddle bronc, but not not ranch bronc so much. Okay. and because now I introduced ranch broncs over there, and because I introduced women ranch bronc riding, now they kind of think ranch broncs are only for women. <laughs> so it's so <laughs> it, it's a little it's a little behind still, but yeah. they're there's a lot better bull riders in Europe than saddle bronx saddle bronx is still kind of um there's not very many there are really good saddle bronx riders over there however but it's pretty slow so far from what I've seen
0: Hmm. that's quite interesting so uh I've not seen dairy stock does he have some good horses
2: I I like his horses it's been a while since I've been on him but when I lived in Nebraska I I've gone to his practice pen a few times and covered quite a few i i like him they're honest and he'll tell you exactly what they are
0: you mean you once lived in nebraska and chose to leave i don't i don't understand what's wrong with that
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i missed montana
0: yeah what else should we know about women's bronc riding or why you're looking forward to coming to broken bow next week britney
2: am i'm just looking forward to keep spreading it around i i've been trying to get these girls to travel and and compete and start opening more doors for them. um but i can only do so much
0: uh one last thing i wanted to ask you because for those of us that at one time i owned 70 horses right now i think i'm at 22 and for those of us that have owned horses for some time it's a very interesting time in the horse world because we had such a depressed market for just about anything for a long period of time. And just like a kiss, the Mandan sale the other day, the excitement, the colts were bringing money. Everybody's excited. There's a, a buzz in the horse world that's kind of fun to be a part of.
2: Oh, yeah, it, it's starting to pick up. I, I mean, I have i can't even hold my personal horses for 60 days before I have someone trying to buy them from me and. I think the from what I've seen here in Billings, we have a horse sale every month. Um, The market is strong. Like, I haven't seen prices go down, and it's just kind of good right now.
0: Thank you, Brittany. It has been a pleasure. And, uh, again, that profound statement will live forever here on Roll Routes. Don't forget the tour, LooseTailsMedia.com. If you want to be a part of this tour, maybe you're listening now and want to make your way to Broken Bow. I don't blame you. Do the whole tour with us. We've successfully journeyed down that path, connecting all the food producers to all the food consumers. For Brittany Miller and for Casey Yeager, I'm Trent Luce. Have a great weekend. See you Monday. All roads do lead to a roll route.